It's good to be with all of you here at Gospel of Grace. Thank you, Bob, for filling in for me last week. And we'll be uh, continuing on in 1 Corinthians next week, if that's correct. So we'll be back to that. And today we are in Matthew chapter 8. And I want to remind you that last time in Matthew, we had witnessed Jesus' lordship and his divine nature by seeing his ability to control the waves of the sea and the storm. Now, today in Matthew 8, 28 through 34, we're going to see Jesus go to the Gentile side of the Sea of Galilee, where now we're going to witness his authority over the demons. Now, we're going to be learning three things today in our applications. Number one, we're going to learn that Jesus is Lord over the angelic realm. So we don't have to fear the angels. And that's number two. Number two, Jesus is going to destroy the wicked angels, the demons in the future day of the Lord. We don't have to do it. He does. Number three, every person, therefore, doesn't need exorcism. They need conversion. Every single person without conversion and faith alone in Christ alone will be sentenced to hell with the demons. That's what we learn today. Through faith alone, in Christ alone, we're going to be attached to the one who's the Lord of the angels. Okay, so with that, let's begin in Matthew eight twenty-eight. And what I want you to do is recall that last time we were in the text, we had seen Jesus with his disciples on the sea encountering this mighty storm that he stilled. Well, now they have made it to the southeastern side, the Gentile side, in the area of the Decapolis. And so that's where we pick it up now. In verse 28, it says, When he, that's Jesus, when he came to the other side into the country of the Gadarenes, two men who were demon-possessed met him as they were coming out of the tombs. They were so extremely violent that no one could pass by that way. Now, dear ones, first of all, notice in bold, Jesus and the disciples went to the other side. As I've mentioned earlier, the other side is the Gentile side of the Sea of Galilee. That would be on the eastern in the southeastern side. But here I think it's very fitting that Matthew focuses on Jesus' authority over the demons on the other side of the lake. Because remember, Matthew is being written primarily to a Jewish audience. The Jews would have understood this region, the other side, to be a demonic stronghold. So Jesus, therefore, is demonstrating his authority over the demons, not just in friendly territory, but in the demonic stronghold of the Decapolis. I think that's how the Jews would have understood it. Now, notice here who he encounters. He, first of all, he goes into the country of the Gadarenes. Now, the phrase the Gadarenes is disputed. And let me explain what the issue is. There's a lot of debate about it because in Mark and Luke, the term Gerasenes is used. And the only reason I'm going to labor this is some skeptics will try to claim here we have an irreconcilable contradiction in the Bible. Why does Matthew refer to it as the Gadarenes, where Mark and Luke say it's the Gerasenes? Well, what Matthew is doing is he's borrowing off a city named Gadara. Mark and Luke were building off the city of Gersera. And so there were two cities in the Decapolis, and both were known. Matthew is focusing on the city that had control of the land that would have butted up against the Sea of Galilee where Jesus and the disciples came ashore. The accounts in Mark and Luke, they focus on the more recognizable of the two cities. And so think of this this way. 
If we said that your friend lived in the Twin Cities, would we be contradicting someone who said they lived in Minneapolis? That's really all we have going on here. So there's no discrepancy. They're both talking about the general region. In fact, notice here, Matthew says the country of the Gadarenes, the term country there, Korah, literally can be rendered region. He's not trying to give you the specific city. Why? Because they didn't land in a city. They land on the shore. This happened outside of all of the cities. So they're giving you the general region. Now, notice here then, he comes across these two men who were demon-possessed. In red, the term demon-possessed is one term in Greek, daimonitsamai, and it literally means to be demonized. Now, what does it mean to be demonized? I think the basic idea is that the men's bodies and their minds are being used as a home for the fallen angels, that these particular fallen angels. And so this means then that these men did not have full control of their bodies or their mental faculties. You're going to see that in the next slide. The demons are going to be their mouthpieces. Now, I also want you to note that these men had been kicked out of society so that they took up their residence where? In the tombs. Now, one of the reasons they did so, perhaps, is because there they could finally find some shelter. The tombs were probably in caves. But the issue that I want you to see here is that this presents further uncleanness in the setting. What Matthew wants us to see is this is as unclean as you can get in Jewish eyes. Let's go through it. They went to the other side. The Gentile side itself is unclean. The demon-possessed men are unclean. Jesus finds them in the tombs. The graveyard is unclean. And as we continue the narrative, where will the demons be cast into? Swine, which are unclean. You can't get any more unclean than this. And I think what Matthew is showing us is that not only did Jesus have the power to cleanse the unclean Jewish leper, he can cleanse the most unclean Gentile. That's the power that Jesus Christ has. Now, also note that these men, because of their demon possession, were so extremely violent that no one could handle them. No one could pass by that way. And so, of course, the obvious question is, well, how will Jesus fare in light of such power? Well, he has no trouble with them. Why? Because he's the living God. That's what Matthew wants us to see. No human could control him, but Jesus can. Why? He's the Lord of all. That's the point that we come to here. Now, notice here as we come into verses 29 through 31, we see this fascinating interaction between Christ and the demons as the demons even recognize Christ's lordship. Notice it says, And they cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now there was a herd of many swine feeding at a distance from them. Verse 31 says, The demons began to entreat him, saying, If you are going to cast us out, send us into the herd of swine. Now, the first thing I want to point out is, notice when it says, They cried out, the they are not the men, although their voices are being used. It's the demons. The demons are the ones who are using the voices of the men. The context makes that obvious. The term cried out there, kratzo, means a loud and an emotional voice. And notice what they say. They say, what business do we have with each other? Literally, in the Greek, it's what to you and to me. Or, I'm sorry, it's literally what to us and to you. 
That's how it's rendered because it's in the plural. What to us and to you. But here the New American Standard Bible does a good job of rendering what the basic idea is. What business do we have with you? And notice how they address Jesus. They give him the title, the Son of God. Now, this is very interesting. Craig Blomberg, the famous scholar in the book of Matthew, suggests perhaps here we have the demons trying to adjure Jesus by using his technical title. If you lived in the ancient Near East, many people believed that if you could find the proper name or the title for some deity or demon, etc., you could manipulate them, you could adjure them. And in the parallel account in Mark chapter 5, that's exactly what Mark says. The demons are trying to adjure Jesus. Here, it will not work because Jesus is God. He cannot be manipulated. But I think perhaps more to the point that Matthew is driving at, by not, he doesn't use the term adjure, he just talks about the title Son of God, is I want you to think of the, the great irony. Two verses earlier, on the Sea of Galilee, the disciples of Jesus really don't know who Jesus is. What manner of man is this that even the winds and the seas obey him? They're wrestling with who he is. But here the demons themselves say, he's the son of God. They know. The demons know exactly who Jesus of Nazareth is. And again, as Matthew unfolds his gospel, you'll see more understanding that the disciples come to. Now here I think we also have a mini application in that The demons clearly know who Jesus is. They know he's the son of God, and yet they're clearly not saved. And so I think here we have to do a mini application that tells us exactly what kind of faith saves. Saving faith is more than just mere mental assent to the facts about Christ. Remember, I've mentioned this numerous times, but the reformers believed that there were three elements to saving faith. The first element was the Latin phrase notitia, the the term, which simply means knowledge. You have to have knowledge, the facts about who Christ is and what he's done to be saved. They have to be facts that come from the Bible. They have to be the true Jesus. The second, though, element of saving faith is a census. A census is the Latin phrase for mental assent, that not only do you have the facts from the Bible about who Christ is, you believe they're true. But you're still not saved. Why? The third element was fiducia, trust, meaning it's for you. I have the facts. I believe they're true. I'm trusting in that. I'm trusting in Christ. And it's the third element, that of fiducia, that the demons lack. Let me show you a passage that I think suggests this very thing. Turn your Bibles to James 2.19. Again, we'll do a little mini application right here. James 2.19. Please turn your Bibles there, and as you do so, recall that some claim that there is a discrepancy between James and the Apostle Paul. Some would argue that Paul teaches justification by faith alone, and that somehow James contradicts that by teaching works. That's not true. A good reading of James is that he merely qualifies what kind of saving faith is saving faith, what kind of faith saves. And notice that's exactly what he's doing here, James 2.19. Let me take this part by part. Notice he begins by saying, again, this is James 2.19. James says, you believe that God is one. Now stop there. What is James probably alluding to 
in light of his Jewish audience, the Shema. The famous Shema of Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And the idea is that some Jews were patting themselves on the back because they could answer that in a theological exam. They knew that there was one God. Well, notice how James challenges them. He says, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. And I think James more than likely probably had this very passage in Matthew that we are studying in mind. Because here, even the demons, they know who Jesus is. And yet they want nothing to do with Christ. They had the knowledge. They even had the mental assent of the knowledge. But they didn't have the trust, the fiducia. They wanted nothing to do with Christ. True saving faith means not only do we know who Christ is from the Scriptures, not only do we believe the facts are true, but in trust, he's for us. That's what it has to be. Saving faith is about putting our trust in the person and work of Christ. I think we should learn that from this. Now, notice the further question the demons have is, have you come here to torment us before the time? Uh, Bob and I have mentioned numerous times that the term time itself can sometimes be the term chronos in Greek, which has to do with one moment after another, chronology. But sometimes the term kairos is used, and that often refers to the significant time, the appointed time, and that's exactly what's used here, kairos. And so what the demons are referring to is the specific time in the future day of the Lord after the millennial kingdom, but before the eternal states in which Satan and the demons will be thrown into the lake of fire. And one of the reasons we know that that's being referred to, them being thrown into the lake of fire, is notice the term torment. Basanitso is the verb that's used. That's the same verb that's used of the torment of Satan who is thrown into the lake of fire in Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. Okay, so certainly what the demons are saying is, hey, how come you're doing this judgment at your first coming? Now, they don't know when the second coming is. They don't know when the day of the Lord is, but they know Jesus isn't supposed to be doing this at the first coming. Let's ask ourselves the questions. Why do so many amillennialists believe that all of the destruction of Satan is binding occurs now? Even the demons realized it wasn't all now that there was going to be a process. We'll talk about that later. But again, Jesus at his first coming, what does he do? He mutes the accusations of the demons. But it's not until his second coming and on into the day of the Lord that he will, in fact, destroy them. That's very clear in the Scriptures. Now, Matthew explains how providentially here in verse 30, there happened to be some swine, this herd, that was a distance from them. Providentially, God had this so that Christ could send the demons into the swine. And as the narrative progresses, we're going to see how much more valuable human beings are than the swine. God casts the demons out of human beings, and he puts them into the animals so that they will go away. Now, we're going to see Jesus do this very thing here in the next verses here. Oops, I got a problem with my computer. I can scroll here. I've got a new glitch in my computer, so I apologize for that. 
Here now we see Jesus demonstrate his authority over the demons, verses 32 to 34. It says, And he said to them, Go. And they came out and went into the swine, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and perished in the waters. The herdsmen ran away and went to the city and reported everything, including what had happened to the demoniacs. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they implored him to leave their region. Dear ones, first of all, notice in blue, Jesus merely gives the word and they have to flee. Think about Jesus who gave the word and the universe leapt into existence, who earlier in Matthew chapter 8 gave the word and the storm is silenced and the seas are quelled, now gives the word, the term in Greek literally, kupago, it's an imperative, and they get out. They flee and they leave where they go into the swine. Now, it's interesting to note that this in the economy of God, sending demons from humans into swine is perfectly acceptable and moral. But in our day and age, I think there would be a lot of people in our culture that have, would have a problem with this. Let me tell you a little story. Some years ago, I remember reading a magazine article from the PETA people. The PETA is the acronym People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. And I remember their article, it showed people grilling chicken on a grill for their family dinner. And the title of the article was The Holocaust on Your Plate. And I thought, how morally absurd to liken the Holocaust, people grilling chicken on the grill, to the murder of six million Jews. But that's how morally confused many are in our day. No, dear ones, human beings are made in the image of God, and it is good that the demons are cast down into the swine. Now, where do the swine go? Notice the herd rushes down the steep bank into the sea and they perish in the waters. Now, of course, what perishes are not the demons, but rather the swine. But the reason this is important for the two men who were set free is this would show them that they are free of these once and for all. That's the idea. Now, there's also some powerful imagery in that the fact that Jesus sends these demons, as it were, in the swine, unclean, down into the sea. The sea is literal here. It's the Sea of Galilee, but it's also symbolic throughout Scripture as being symbolic of the abyss. Let me give you an example. Revelation 13, 1, where does the beast come out of? The Antichrist. He's depicted as coming up out of the abyss. And so remember, Jesus here at his first advent isn't sentencing yet, as he will during the millennial kingdom, Satan and his demons to the abyss. This is a down payment. This is powerful imagery that Jesus as Lord over the demons will one day send them back to where they belong, the abyss. So he does it physically, literally, as a powerful symbol, what he will do again, literally, later in the future millennial kingdom. Now, very interesting to note the reaction of the herdsmen. Notice verse 33. They ran away. They reported everything. They are obviously very concerned about this display of power that Jesus has just performed. Plus, they are probably a little mad about the loss of the herd. 
That's certainly, I think, what's going on. But notice here the reaction of the whole Gentile region. They are not happy. They are not excited by the freeing of these men from the demons. In fact, they implore Jesus, leave our region. Leave our region. These Gentiles are so hard-hearted that they are more concerned about the loss of their swine than they are of the freeing of these men. So hard-hearted are these Gentiles that D.A. Carson said it this way. D.A. Carson, the great scholar of the book of Matthew, said, he said, quote, the Gentiles here preferred pigs to people and swine to the Savior, unquote. Let me say that again. He said the Gentiles' heart is so hardened that, quote, they preferred pigs to people and swine to the Savior, unquote. That's a hard heart. And dear ones, time and time again through the book of Matthew, we are going to see the miraculous power of Jesus in and of itself does not lead people to salvation. People simply remain amazed. But brothers and sisters, make no mistake about it. Matthew is portraying Jesus Christ as the Lord of all. He can calm the sea and he can cast out the demon. Jesus is not just Lord over the weather. He's even Lord of the angels. That's what we want to see in this text today. Okay, let's come to some application points for you this morning. Number, I've got three of them. Number one, we should understand Jesus being God is Lord over the angelic and demonic realm. Certainly, that's what Matthew is portraying. If that's true, Jesus must be God. Number two, we should know that Christ will one day destroy Satan and his angels in the future day of the Lord. Two points there. Number one, it doesn't all happen at the first advent, as so many amillennialists claim. There's a process. Number two, you and I don't have to destroy the angels or boss the demons around. Jesus will handle that. Number three, we must know that every person needs conversion to escape the demonic realm. Exorcism in and of itself won't do the job. It won't do it because you can be an unbeliever without demon possession, but you still belong to their realm. And when Jesus Christ returns and judges them, he's going to judge you too. Every single human being needs conversion to escape the demonic realm. Okay, so let's begin with number one. What I want to show you is that as Jesus dealt with the demons in this passage, I think it's important to define what the demons are. So let's talk about angelology and demonology so we know exactly who Jesus is dealing with. So the first thing I want to define is that angels are created beings, and they are created beings to exercise God's will as vice regents in the heavens. So they carry out his bidding. They are his messengers, and they perform his will as he uses them in his divine counsel to regulate his universe. Okay, so in fact, notice the term divine counsel. In the Hebrew, there's a phrase used for them, B'nai Elohim, the sons of God. And it's not because the Jews thought they were deity in the sense of Yahweh, you know, being eternal, having all power, having the incommunicable attributes of God. No, the, the Jews didn't think that. What they, the reason they called them the sons of God is because they belonged to Yahweh. And it was his prerogative to use them as he saw fit. In fact, I want to show you biblical evidence of this. Turn your Bibles to 1 Kings 22. 1 Kings 22, we'll start in verse 19. 
1 Kings 22. And again, I want you to see how God uses his angels, both good and bad, to rule and to reign on his throne, to bring about exactly what he has ordained to come about. Now, as you're turning to 1 Kings 22, verse 19, let me just set the stage. Remember, this is where you had that wicked king of Israel, Ahab, and he joins forces with the king of Judah, Jehoshaphat, to wage a war against Aram, which is modern-day Syria. Well, Ahab has a bunch of false prophets that falsely tell him, oh, yeah, you're going to win. The Lord has handed over your enemies to you. Well, Jehoshaphat raises his hand. I'm being a little bit facetious, but he says, hey, isn't there another prophet? The name Micaiah. And of course, Ahab doesn't like him because he never prophesies anything good about Ahab. But Micaiah is the true prophet of God. And he reveals something quite different than the narrative of the false prophets. Notice here in verse 19, it says, Micaiah said, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing by him on his right and on his left. Stop there. The only reason that we know what is going on in this throne room is not because we can see it or we can divine it. It's because it's been revealed by God through his prophet Micaiah, the true prophet, not the false prophets of Ahab. And so notice the setting. This is a divine council setting. The whole host of heaven are the good angels and the wicked angels. They're sitting on the right and the left. And notice what the discussion is. Here's the agenda of the meeting. Verse 20, it says, The Lord said, Who will entice Ahab to go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said this while another said that. So stop there. That's the agenda. The discussion is Yahweh sets the agenda. He's with his divine counsel. Who's going to bring Ahab to destruction? Now notice in verse 21, it says, Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. Verse 22. The Lord said to him, how? And he said, I will go out and put a be, excuse me, and be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all of his prophets. Then he said, you, this is the Lord speaking back, you are to entice him and also prevail. Go and do so. Notice the Lord is sovereign over what this demon could do. And it's this fallen angel who is going to put the false message in these false prophets and lead Ahab to destruction. And that's exactly what happened. God uses his angels as he sees fit, whether they're good or bad. And he brings about his providential and ordained will. So when we talk about angels, we have to break down the angels into two groups. And this may be somewhat rudimentary, but for the lack of better, let's call the good angels, good angels. These are the ones who obey God. And by the way, that seems to be fixed. It's not that you have some that might waffle. No, that's a fixed position. You have good angels and you have wicked angels that I'm calling demons. That's who the demons are. They're wicked fallen angels. And according to Revelation 12.4, by the way, I had a typo in your handout. It's 12.3, but correct it. It's actually Revelation 12.4. I just caught that last night. We find that... In fact, Satan led a rebellion of the angels so that a third of them left God and followed after Satan, a third of them. So according to Revelation 12, 4, a third of the angels are demons, 
The other two-thirds remain faithful to God. Now, when did this fall occur? Well, I think it's fair to say that it happened prior to the creation of man because certainly Satan is active in the garden trying to deceive, and he does, Adam and Eve. So that would have happened this fall prior to the creation of mankind. Now, of the demons, again, these are the wicked angels. We have two different groups. We have to break our demons into two groups. And this is where I think people kind of go astray. The first group are those who stayed in their own domain. Now, what do I mean by that? These are demons who did not go after women to have physical relations with them, as the Bible teaches in Genesis 6 and Jude 6 through 7. Yes, this really occurred. If someone doesn't believe that the angels tried to have sexual immorality with women, they are disagreeing with the scriptures found in Jude 6 and 7. Because Jude 6 and 7 clearly teaches that the same kind of sexual immorality Sodom and Gomorrah engaged in, these angels did. So your disagreement isn't with Eric, it's with the book of Jude, verses 6 through 7. So one group of demons didn't leave their domain, they stayed within the angelic realm. But the second group were those who strayed from their domain. And I'm going to explain why that's important in our Matthew narrative here. Now, proof of this, notice here in Jude 6. I didn't have room to put verse 7, but that goes into their sexual immorality. Jude 6 says, And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he, this is the Lord, has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Well, wait a minute. If all demons are those who did not keep their own domain, then all demons would be in eternal bonds. That is, they'd be not active, awaiting for the judgment. Well, then who would Jesus be casting out? Who would Jesus be interacting with if they were all under eternal bonds? Are you with me? So what explains the difference between Jude 6 and Matthew 8 is that some demons stayed within their own domain. Those are the demons that are still active today. They did not go after women. Therefore, they're still active. And Jesus is casting some of them out in the narrative in Matthew 8, 28 through 34. The other demons who strayed from their domain, they are currently held in the abyss where the rest of them will be sentenced during the millennial kingdom until the judgment of that great day. Brothers and sisters, what clearly the Bible is showing us is that Jesus in Matthew 8, he's Lord of the demons. He is the one who controls them. Yes, he mutes their activity because of his finished work on the cross. But at his second coming, he will, in fact, destroy them. In fact, the whole Bible, not just the Gospels, present Jesus as the Lord of the angels. So yes, the good angels and also the wicked angels, all of the demons as well. Now, we see this in many places, but let me focus on Hebrews 1, 6 through 8. The writer of Hebrews shows us here the superiority of Christ over the angels. And he uses three Old Testament psalms to prove his point. Hebrews 1, 6 through 8, let's read it. It says, And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, And let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, Who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter 
of his kingdom. Now, the first thing I want to point out is I want you to notice that Jesus, I'm going to pull up my pointer, is called the firstborn. Does everyone see that in this text? So he is God the Father. He brings the firstborn into the world. Now, from that phrase firstborn, some have concluded that, well, Jesus must be a created being. The Jehovah Witnesses will say that to you. If they come to your door, be prepared for them using that against you. But firstborn here does not mean that Jesus came into existence, but it accentuates in the ancient Near East the fact that he has the inheritance rights. The firstborn had the inheritance rights. So who has the inheritance of God himself? The Son. And so notice here, he proves, the writer of Hebrews, the superiority of Jesus by citing from Psalm 97, all about the dominion of God, where it says, let all the angels of God worship him. Who are they going to worship? The Messiah. What's the implication? Well, he's God. Now, by the way, in the Masoretic text in the Hebrew, the angels are called the Elohim. They're called gods. Now, why do the Jews call them gods? They don't believe that they're creators like Yahweh. They're simply referring to this B'nai Elohim, the sons of God. They belong to the divine council of Yahweh, and therefore they have that nickname. That's the idea here in the Greek, Angelos, these angels all worship the Messiah. Again, that's Psalm 97.7. Now, the very next psalm, notice I don't have it bolded, but it's in all caps, is from Psalm 104.4, where it teaches about the swiftness in which the angels must carry out the will of God. That's why it says the angels are winds and as ministers a flame of fire. It's about the swiftness in which they carry out the decrees of God. Now that's contrasted with the Son who is God because he has the scepter. And that's from Psalm 45, 6 through 7. Your throne, O God. This is what he says of the Son. It's a contrast. Here the angels obey and do quickly what he says, but here Jesus is God. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. Dear ones, is Jesus Lord of the angels? Yes. Does that mean, therefore, that he's Lord of the demons? Yes. And because he's Lord of the angels, he's Lord of the demons, he's Yahweh. He's God. That's exactly what Matthew wants us to see in his presentation of Jesus Christ. And if Jesus is Lord of all, you and I can trust that he will deal with Satan and his minion. We don't have to do it. That's a big takeaway, I think, from what we learn about Christ and the demons. Okay, again, since Jesus is Lord, he is going to handle them in the future judgment, that is, these demons. And that was alluded to today by the demons themselves in Mark, excuse me, Matthew 8, 29. Remember, they say, Son of God, what do we have to do with you? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Even the demons know that he's Lord. Even the demons know that he is going to handle them in the future. And so we see this played off of then, Later in Matthew 25, 41, an exceedingly important verse for building our biblical worldview. And I'll explain why. Notice here at the end of the Olivet Discourse, Jesus is talking about the final judgment before the eternal states. It says, then he, this is actually referring to himself, the son of man, will also say to those on his left, 
Notice the unbelievers are on the left. Are, are, are. Okay. Sorry, sorry, I had to throw that one out there. Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. So those who don't obey Christ, they don't believe, they're going to be cast into the eternal fire that was designed for the devil and his angels. Now, one reason this text is very important is some people believe that demons are in fact the departed spirits of the Nephilim. So what they believe is that demons are not fallen angels, but the spirits of dead men and women who are the offspring of the angels and the women. Are you with me? This text helps us see that that's not true. Notice here the eternal fire, that's the lake of fire. Remember today the question from the demons was, are you now, are you now going to torment us? Remember, Basanitso, before the time? The Basanitso, the torment, happens where? In the eternal fire. So what that shows us is that these demons are not the departed spirits of men, but they're fallen angels. They're the angels that belong to Satan. Now, let me give you further evidence that this is indeed the case. Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. It says, And the devil who deceived them, this is after that final battle in the millennial kingdom, called the Gog and Magog, it says the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Who's going to be thrown into the eternal lake of fire? Well, dev, the devil. We see from Matthew twenty-five forty-one. it's also his angels. And ironically, notice the term tormented. Basanitso. Very same term that's used today in Matthew 8, 29. The demons are going to be basanitsoed. Why? Because they are the angels of the devil. And where are they going to be basanitsoed? In the lake of fire. Clearly, Jesus Christ is Lord of the angels. He's Lord of the demons. You and I don't have to judge them. We don't have to boss them around. We can trust that Christ will handle them with the greatest of ease. In fact, let me put up a timetable and I want to further explain this question and just show you when this will happen. Again, notice the question of the demons. Matthew eight twenty nine. What business do we have with each other, son of God? Have you come here to Basanito, us before the time? What's the answer to it on the timeline? This is where they're going to be Basanitoed. They're going to be thrown into the lake of fire. So the demons know that they don't know when this will happen, but they know it's not to be at the first advent. They know that much. So let's go through what happens because we have to see two applications here. We have to see that first, the destruction of the demons and Satan is a progressive thing. It doesn't happen all because of the first advent of Christ. The amillennialists claim that. The second thing we see is Jesus is complete Lord. We don't have to interact and boss the demons around. Jesus will take care of them. Notice, first of all, the first advent of Christ. What does Christ accomplish at the first advent? He mutes the allegations of the demons and Satan. According to Revelation 12, Satan makes allegations against us because you and I are lawbreakers. But what happens when Jesus pays the debt in full? Do those allegations have any merit? No. Jesus paid it off. So therefore, the allegations made against us in the throne room are muted. 
This is the second advent, the 70th week, which is the parousia. After that time period, Satan and the demons are going to be bound where? They're going to be bound in the abyss. What did Jesus do today with the demons? He cast them into the sea, which is a foreshadowing of them going into the abyss for the entire millennial kingdom. So that's why in the millennial kingdom, as it says in Isaiah 2, you'll have the swords beat into plowshares, the spears into pruning hooks, and the nations will no longer learn war. One of the reasons is there's not demons after them. There aren't demons putting deceiving ideas in the ears of people. They'll still be the unregenerate on the scene, but they won't be getting messages from Satan and the demons. After the thousand years, they're released for the battle of Gog and Magog. Shortest battle you've ever seen. Jesus calls down fire, devours his enemies, sentences every single unbeliever to the lake of fire, but also Satan and the demons before the eternal state. As you and I go into the eternal state, the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem being our playground, we will never have to deal with the fallen human or the fallen angel ever again. That is is exciting, brothers and sisters. Follow the progression. The amillennialists say it all happens here. Oh, that's not true. Even the demons know there's a time coming. Learn from the demons. No, it's muted, abyss, lake of fire. That's the trajectory of the demons. Brothers and sisters, you and I don't have to boss them around. You and I don't have to try to manipulate the demons. We can trust that because Jesus is Lord... He will handle them. And so that leads me to my final point. The last point that I want to make today is that we should forsake the desire to want to interact with demons. Our desire as believers should be to go to the throne of grace and trust that God will handle the whole angelic realm, whether good angels or bad angels, to perform Romans 8.28. Romans 8, 28, God causes all things to work for the good for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Do all things incorporate the good angels? Yes. Does it incorporate the wicked angels? Yes. It's all things. All things God is going to use for our good. Can we trust that? Absolutely. When I was a brand new Christian, I was around people who belonged to the Word of Faith movement. And I remember many times hearing them, they'd go on prayer walks and they'd say, I'm going to bind Satan and I'm going to tell this demon what to do. And they're always bossing the angels around. And I didn't know any better. I didn't really know. It didn't seem like a good idea, but I couldn't tell you why. I just didn't really like the mystical realm that much. But dear ones, it's not a good idea. It's not a good idea at all. In fact, let me lay out three different categories of people and I'll show you the category we should belong to. First category of people those who deny demons exist. Whether believers or unbelievers, they just don't believe the demons exist. We shouldn't be that. No, the Bible is clear they exist. Second category of people, those who believe the demons exist and they want to interact with them. That's the category that you'll be around with many Christians. Yes, they know they exist. They know it's revealed in the scriptures, but they want to interact with them as if they're the Lord of the angels. But the third category is the category of people that we should belong to, those who believe we know demons exist and we trust God to deal with them. That's exactly the category that Bob had articulated uh, that we should belong to in his 
CIC article, volume 131. Uh, you know, a lot of people, when you ask them something, they say, hey, we have an app for that. And they'll pull out their phone. We've got an app for that. At Gospel of Grace, we have an article for that. Right? Thank you, Bob, for all the articles. This is volume 131. It's entitled, Rescued, Transferred, Redeemed, and Forgiven, Exposition of Colossians 1, 13 through 14. Please look that up and you can get it great detail about how we should be those who trust God and his sovereignty over the angelic realm. Dear ones, why should we not boss the angels and the demons around? Let me give you a passage that I think succinctly shows us why we should not. Notice here in Jude 9, the background to this is there apparently, as revealed by the scriptures, was a dispute that we didn't see, that as human beings didn't see. But there was a dispute in the angelic realm over the body of Moses. Why this dispute arose, we don't know. We just know there was one. And so the dispute was between Michael the archangel and Satan, a good angel versus a wicked angel. Jude 9 reveals this. It says, But Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Okay, so let's do a greater to lesser argument. If the greater Michael the archangel, who is in fact an angel who is far more powerful than we mere mortals, who can see in the spiritual realm and knows what's going on where you and I don't, if he would not boss the devil around, but appealed that the Lord alone would do it, how much less should you and I, who are less mere mortals, mere human beings, how much less should you and I be busy on our prayer walks, binding Satan, telling the demons where they must go, where they can't go, etc. Who is in charge of the divine council meeting? Is it human beings or is it the Holy One of Israel? Brothers and sisters, let's not boss the angels around, but let us go, as it says in Hebrews 4.16, to the throne of grace and find help in our time of need. Think about the Apostle Paul when he had the thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians 12. Did the Apostle Paul start bossing Satan around? You know, I'm really sick of this thorn in the flesh. That's it, Satan, you're bound. And I'm going to declare it, and for, for that matter, because I've said it, it's going to happen. No, he didn't do that. It says he went to the Lord in prayer. Three times he prayed for it to be removed. And what was the Lord's answer? No. Three times the Lord said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. The Lord knew in his providential care of Paul that Paul needed that thorn in the flesh which came from Satan for his good. Do you and I trust the Lord that way? Will we trust him with the demons in our lives, the problems of our lives, that he really is sovereign and he will cause every single scintilla, every single molecule of the entire cosmos to work for your good? That's the kind of trust that we're called to have in the scriptures. Another problem, I'll leave you with this, related to all of this, is those who want to focus on combating demons without conversion. Think of it this way. If we're not going to do conversions by preaching the gospel and we're just going to do exorcisms, are we not just rearranging, as, as Bob says, the chairs on the 
deck of the Titanic? I think we are. Why? Well, think of it this way. Where are the demons going? Well, the demons are going to hell. They're going to be judged. And so you can have a human being who is demon-possessed, demonized as we saw today, and the demons are exorcised. There's an exorcism. They're cast out, and yet they remain an unbeliever. And if they remain an unbeliever, the wrath of God is upon them. And if they die in their sin, where do they go? They're going to the lake of fire where the demons and Satan are going to be. So what's the difference? It's like someone on the Titanic saying, I don't want my chair to be in the bow of the boat. I'm going to put it in the stern of the boat. That's exorcism. The boat's still going down. What we need is conversion. And that's the point, the central thesis Bob makes I believe succinctly in volume 131 of CIC. Let's look at the data. Colossians 1, 13 through 14. Listen to what God can do for any person who trusts in Christ. Any person who comes to Christ, this is true of them. It says, for he, that's a father, rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Who rescued us? God the Father. What did he rescue us from? Notice it's from the domain of darkness. Now, does that mean the domain of darkness? We're being rescued from the bad things that Satan and the demons can do to us. Well, that's part of it. But the idea here is that those who belong to the domain of darkness are going to perish, basinizo, tormented. They're going to be tormented in the lake of fire. And if we are with them, we are going to be tormented by God in the same lake of fire. So if you belong to the domain of darkness, you're going to be destroyed in the lake of fire forever and ever, just as the demons are. But where were we transferred to when we trusted in Christ? We were transferred to the kingdom of the beloved Son where there's going to be a resurrection unto glory, a glorious kingdom in which we will reign upon the earth with our God, in which we will have a new heavens, a new earth, and a new Jerusalem, and forevermore be in the presence of our God and never to be in the presence of Satan and his minion. Today, brothers and sisters, we don't need exorcism. What we learn is every person needs conversion. Trust in Jesus Christ, the one who spoke and the universe came into existence. The one who spoke and the sea and the storm stilled. The one who spoke and the demons fled. Today is the day, if you have not done so previously, place your fiducia, your trust in Jesus Christ, Lord of the angels. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for what you've revealed in Scripture, that we can have complete confidence that belonging to Christ, we don't have anything to fear from the angelic realm. We thank you for this, Lord. We thank you for the truth that through faith alone in Christ alone, we can be partakers of the kingdom of the beloved Son. We do pray, Heavenly Father, for family members, for friends, for loved ones, co-workers that don't know you, we pray, Lord, you give us opportunity to proclaim your gospel to them, that you would open and regenerate their ears and their heart so that they may hear and believe, that they may too have this domain transfer from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of the beloved Son, 
We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.